Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 200, BGA's Top 100 Games. We'd like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you 200 fabulous episodes. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast for board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. Hey, and this is Anthony. So the moment has finally come upon us. Episode 200, the ultimate episode as far as giant round numbers after a specific number that typically or culturally supposedly is significant <laughs> sure that's a lot of caveats it's a bicentennial man we're, we're 200 episodes is crazy it's just really really great to be here yeah man it's it's uh it's a funny thing because we've been doing this for five and a half years i don't know that i've done many things for five and a half or more years my marriage i guess that's about it <laughs> i don't even, i haven't even held a job that long in my life um it's uh so it's crazy just to think like where we've been, where we've come from, all the different things we've talked about, getting a chance to do yet another one of these lists, but in a good way because it's it's been a while and it, it really makes you think about I guess all the stuff we've played just for this podcast. <laughs> it's true. We've actually had I guess a five plus year friendship and we have a five plus year podcast. So you got to hear how Anthony and I became friends, how we continue our friendship. Even though we now live many, many miles away from each other, we still are able to connect thanks to the extraordinary power of cardboard. And obviously, everyone listening, you are definitely part of the BGA family, part of the BGA team. That's why each and every week, we always say that we want you to join us at the table. So we are very, very glad and really proud that you join us and listen every week because you're one of us yeah absolutely i mean uh, half these games we've played with 
people who listen to the podcast, people, local people in the area that know us and know us, know our likes and dislikes and uh, are almost certainly going to give us grief about what we've chosen for this list. You guys know who you are. You make a list. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the, uh, as you said, the rite of passage to have to put your money where your mouth is, or in this case, your yes. cardboard, <laughs> poorly uh, constructed insert happens to be, and actually put out our top 100 out there for the world to see, naked to the world, open for any type of questioning, criticism, or general hilarity that may ensue. Anthony and I really struggled with this list because when you do get to 200 episodes, you played a large number of games and you really want to make sure that your lists are always as listy as possible. Is that a thing? Yeah. Yeah. Whatever verb is used to describe lists. <laughs> Long. Yeah. No, it's, it's difficult because the last time we did this, we kind of collaborated on it. We updated our, our last one. It hadn't been that long, but now it's been a few years and it's been almost shoot, almost five years, four or five years now since I made my own personal top list. So going back through and doing this again was an interesting experience because a lot of games that were very high up there got booted out completely. Some games I've played relatively recently just skyrocketed up. It was uh, quite the challenge to figure out where to put them, how to rank them, what games I wanted to highlight, what games I didn't want people to play anymore. <laughs> I didn't want to rip up my name next to. It took much longer than I expected. Yeah, same for me too. I generally keep my ratings on Board Game Geek, and I have about 670 some odd ratings there. So I was able to pull down a list, but there's just sometimes where certain games really shine in certain circumstances, and sometimes where games are great, but they just don't get to the table because maybe they're too long or too complicated, or the setup breakdown is just ridiculous. So maybe technically they deserve to be in the top 100, but in true application, they just don't reach that milestone. And unfortunately, they just get bumped a little bit. That happens to be off the list. Like when I started doing mine, I think I narrowed it down to like 200 and then 150. And then that 150 is what I use to kind of maneuver things back and forth and figure out what I actually liked and wanted on the list. You know, the top 30 was relatively easy, but everything after that was like, well, you know, different circumstances, apples to oranges. Uh. <laughs> it's true. I think that for me, there was a lot of games that fit certain categories. So they kind of almost moved together. But then when you had, let's say, a heavy Euro versus a heavy Amerithrash game, and you're like, well, exactly how do these kind of fit together? Well, the complexity here and the, the numbers of players that you play here. So it was actually a very torturous type of situation trying to figure out which of your children you love best. <laughs> you know, bear with us as far as this goes. Remember, I think there was about 4,000 board games that came out this year alone. So unfortunately, we don't get the time to play every game out there or every game, of course, does not hit our table. So if you don't hear about a game that's on our list, don't worry, let us know and we'll let you know if it made our back end of our list or maybe it made a beyond 100, or maybe for some reason we just haven't gotten it to the table yet. And we'd like to know because maybe it'll make our list for the next time. And obviously in general, you know, a game where we place the games is extremely important, but at the same time, there's a little give and take, you know, plus one or plus two, depending on the game itself as how it could maybe be a little higher, or a little bit lower. 
but we really wanted to give you the most dedicated list possible. We spent a lot of hours putting this together and we really hope that you enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Keep all those things in mind. I, I personally like looking at Chris's list. I'm like, oh, I haven't played this. I haven't played this. I haven't played this. And I, I felt bad about it. <laughs> but that's the nature of the beast, guys. We play a lot of stuff and some of it's not very good. So it's not on these lists. <laughs> it's true. Now, don't forget, we have our episode 201 coming out next week, which is our listeners top 20 games. So I do not know what's on this list. Anthony has all the information and it's going to be a lot of fun for me as I hear what you think is best. And as you go through the list this week, I'll be going through your list next week and we'll just generally have a good time during this wonderful holiday season. All right. So, so for our feature review, our top 100 games, Anthony and I are going to give you our own personal top 50 our games that we love and how we individually rank them. We did not go over this with each other in advance. So when you're hearing it, we're hearing it for the very first time as well. So there should be a lot of surprises in there. So this is going to be an especially long episode, but both of us went the extra mile and has our 51 to 100 also recorded. So if you are a Patreon backer, and of course, you can reach us at patreon.com backslash BGA. For just a dollar, you'll have access to all of our Patreon-backed episodes, including what will be a new episode, which is Anthony and I's top 51 to 100 each. So you can listen to our top 50s right now, and you can jump over to patreon.com backslash BGA and listen to the second half of our 100 episodes. We really hope that you do that. It helps us a lot in bringing you brand new podcasts and obviously so much more content for this holiday season. And maybe, who knows, if you haven't picked up a gift for that someone special yet, maybe sign them up for our Patreon account. I'm sure they would love to listen to our 51 to 100 episodes. Right, Anthony? And if you're not a Patreon backer or can't do it, we totally understand. In a couple of weeks... I'll be putting the entire list up on the website as well. So you can at least see what the games are along with a little bit of description. But for now, if you want to listen to the entire top 200 BGA games, wow. um, we've got you covered here on this episode for the next hour and a half, two hours. And then we've got you covered over on Patreon for another hour and a half to two hours. So lots and lots and lots of audio for the holiday season for you. Absolutely. All right. So Anthony, with all of that now said, let's get into your top 50. Number 50 on my list is Alhambra. Simplicity at its best. Uh, Alhambra can get kind of dull in its vanilla form, but uh, even so, it works perfectly for engaging new players in the hobby. Uh, add in one or two of the expansions and you have a game with honestly limitless replayability. It's a real favorite in my house. Number 49 is At the Gates of Luoyang. Uh, this is one of the few Rosenberg games that doesn't immediately feel like a Rosenberg. Players, instead of worker placement, they race to grow vegetables and use them to fulfill contracts and long-term customers, drafting cards in a central turn every round. Scores are very low and money is very tight, but this makes every decision impactful. This game is fantastic. Number 48 Iki. I'm going to call this my oddball of the list. Uh, it's one you won't find many places, but I adore it. Uh, it's a rondelle-based game in which you move around the market of Iki, attempting to level up and retire different artisans that you will recruit. It's fairly simple at its core, 
uh, and incredibly beautiful, evoking different woodblock style artwork of the time, and honestly has one of my favorite board game covers, period. Unfortunately, it's relatively hard to find, but if you see it, get it. Let's eat keep. Number 47 is X-Wing Miniatures game. It's Star Wars, it's miniatures, it's pre-printed X-Wings. This is the kind of thing that drags people into the hobby kicking and screaming. And while it's not the thing that got me into the hobby, I own a whole bunch of it. <laughs> and with the second edition finally out, it's a good chance to get into the game if you've not yet had a chance to play this. One of the best flight pass systems just because of the sheer volume of content and the organized play around it. Love, love, love X-Wing Miniatures game. Number 46, San Juan. There are a lot of games with the whole one card, many purposes mechanic, but this is one of the simplest and the most replayable. It's a perfect game for two players and a fantastic app on the iPad. When it was out of print, I hunted for it forever. If you have a chance to pick this one up, or if you haven't played it, definitely track it down. That is San Juan. Number 45, Mombasa. I had played Alexander Fitzgerald games before, uh, but this was the game that made me know who he was. It's clever. It's addictive. The card play and hand management system are very unique. The multi-track balancing act for scoring and the very carefully interwoven mechanics make for what I think is his best game to date. Number 44, Council of Four. This game has two very different looking versions, uh, but thankfully, Simon kept the core gameplay the same because that is what is important about Council of Four. One part ticket to ride, another part of engine building Euro. Players pay to place houses around the map and chain bonuses off one another in a quick 60 to 90 minute game. It's one of my favorites of the last few years. Castle of Four is a home run. Number 43, Castles of Burgundy, the card game. So I will admit it, I scoffed when this was announced. Another card game version, like Power Grid, ugh. Except it wasn't like Power Grid, the card game. It was more like San Juan to Puerto Rico. Not just a good game, but almost as good as its big brother in the cardboard. It's fast, it's compact, and while it takes up a lot of table space, it manages to feel like Castles of Burgundy. That's Castles of Burgundy, the card game. Number 42, Star Wars Destiny. So like millions of gamers, I got my start in CCGs and quickly graduated out of them when I realized I could do so much more with the money I was spending. Uh, Fantasy Flight managed to pull me right back in, though, with a clever combination of cards and dice in uh, Destiny. And combined with my favorite IP and a litany of cool new mechanics that only work with dice to manage the, the random number generation, this is still one of my favorites. And I continue to buy the new sets, even when I'm not playing a lot. Star Wars Destiny is fantastic. Number 41, Root. I liked Vast, but never played it due to how hard it was to teach and how long it could take. Root does all of what Vast did, but repackages it as a coin-style war game and does it faster and cuter. Uh, I love Root more than I ever thought possible for such a game, and with more content on the way, it has a spot on my regular rotation for years to come. Root is a blast. Number 40, Fields of Arl. Uwe Rosenberg has a lot of sandbox games, uh, but this is one of the best, in my opinion. It's broken into different seasons that correspond to different action options, you have to carefully plan and manage your actions over the course of several years. Uh, and you can play it with one, two, or with the expansion, three players. Speaking of that expansion, the TN Trade makes the game a little bit longer, but also much better. So definitely recommend that as well for Fields of Arl. 
Number 39, Empires, Age of Discovery. I'm a recent adherent to this worker placement classic. Uh, I got in on it with the reprint from Eagle Griffin just a couple of years ago. And the genre has pretty clearly come a long way in the last couple of decades, but it still works really well. For such an old game, and I use old in quotation marks here, the deluxe edition adds lots of fun new flair, a shiny coat of paint. Those core mechanics, though, are still tight, fast, and very fun. Empire's Age of Discovery is one of my favorite worker placement games, period. Number 38, Robinson Crusoe. I feel like I'm trapped in an echo chamber when playing co-ops. I'm taking directions from other players, arguing over the next move. That happens in Robin Crusoe too, but it doesn't matter. The story is so compelling and the player difference is so tightly defined that it just plain works. Uh, there's a lot of extra content here. You have two expansions, one previously released and out of print, but coming back soon, and a new one coming out next year, plus tons of extra different adventures that have come out as promos. Robinson Crusoe has a ton of content, a lot of variability. It can be very difficult, which makes it a perfect co-op. And the new version has decent rules, so well worth checking out. Number 37, 878 Vikings. I have been a fan of the Birth of Nation series since it began, owning, I mean, I own 1775, 1812, but 878 Vikings is a re-implementation of the system in the first in the Birth of Europe, and honestly, I think it's the best one. So um, now I own a bunch of these. <laughs> Asymmetrically balanced with a huge swing available as the Vikings and several different upgrades and expansions to build the game out. 878 Vikings is currently my favorite two-player war game that isn't based on an IP. And we'll see why that's the case soon. But it is fantastic. I love this game. It keeps hitting the table. Absolutely love it. 878 Vikings. Number 36, Clans of Caledonia. So this is kind of a mashup of sorts. Uh, brings in several of my favorite things, farming heroes, economic games, Terra Mystica. And yet it's none of these things and all of them. And despite the derivative description, the combination works exceedingly well. It's compact. It's a small production euro. It has elements of stock type market where you're buying and selling goods at different rates. You have the player board where you're pulling pieces off to unlock new abilities and production. Such a fun game. And honestly, hoping it sees bigger production, bigger uh, distribution in the in the years to come. Number 35, Twa. So this is another dice-driven Euro. Uh, Twa allows you to purchase and use dice from any player, effectively expanding your dice pool to match your money, combined with a series of clever mechanics mechanics to face global threats, compete for new actions, and work toward one known and several hidden endgame goals. This is another oldie, but goodie. Very happy it came back into print. And the Ladies of Trois expansion adds even more variability, which is a must. Number 34, Nations. So Nations makes the list for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, it's a great civilization game. More than that, though, it allows players to progress through the game in the way they feel best fits their needs. And for that reason, the replayability is super high. Combine that with solid solo play mechanics. And this is really one of my favorite games of my collection. It hits the table a lot for solo play. It is relatively long if you play with a group of people, but I still enjoy that. A lot of games that are, you know, hit my table a lot for solo. I don't play as much regular. This one is still, I push and push to get this one at the table as much as I can. Dynasty exp Dynasty's expansion, 
offers a whole bunch of new nations to play as and kind of a cool dynasty mechanism. Not necessary, but fun to add to the game. Number 33, leaving Earth. So have you ever wanted to build a rocket and go to space? Well, can't do that, but you have a board game about doing that. Um, Leaving Earth is a kind of an integration between simulation and game experience, and it's based on the space race from like the mid 50s to the mid 70s. And on the surface, that sounds kind of dull, but the game itself is just this amazing amalgamation of clever mechanics in which you are building rockets and testing them and then launching them. And you can continue to test them to make them safe to launch, or you can just launch it and see what happens. So there's an element of randomness and push your luck in here. You build up this beautiful tableau of cards that represents the solar system, and you're trying to reach these different places. Victory points are based on how far you go and how many amazing things you do. The expansions allow you to go even further beyond what we've actually done as a species. Leaving Earth is a hidden gem I've absolutely love. I'm glad more people are finding it. Still not really in mass distribution, but it is out there. Definitely check this one out if you like this type of game. Number 32, Tramways. This is my favorite of Albin Viard's small city series of games. It's not much to look at. I will be the first to admit that. It's not very pretty, but it has a brilliant puzzle core. And the auction-driven deck building component is still one of the best of that type I've ever seen. Just such a cool, clever way to manage the cards. I honestly can't believe I haven't seen this in other games yet because it seems like something someone should borrow. It's that clever. It's that fun. And the basic idea of this game is so puzzly and so just fun to wrap your head around that they've actually made a book just of puzzles and scenarios try to work your way through by yourself. And I have that and I love it. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. That's why Tramways is my number 32. Number 31, Lorenzo Il Magnifico. So I love dice placement as a mechanism, but it can be challenging to mitigate and manage the rules unless everyone has the same dice. And that's what Lorenzo does. It has a set number of dice at the beginning of the game. You roll them every round. Everybody has those numbers. You have all sorts of cool stuff you can do to change those values and mitigate them and play with them. But at the end of the day, if the dice rolls all stink, you don't have to sit there and use that as an excuse for losing the game because everybody had the same crappy dice rolls. It is an almost punishingly tight tableau builder that offers so many different permutations from the way the cards come out to the different actions you can take to the dice rolls that come out. And it's even more engaging if you throw the expansion in there. All these different leaders, additional action types, a new tower with new cards to play through. Definitely worth checking out. Lorenzo Il Magnifico, one of my favorite euros of this weight. Number 30, Lisboa. Lisboa takes everything I love about Lacerda's designs, Vital Lacerda, and channels it into a sublime two to three hour experience, maybe longer your first couple times, of rebuilding a broken city the broken city of Lisbon, complete with many of its trademark mechanics, including follow actions and another beautiful board from Ian O'Toole. This is kind of the the go-to thing with any Vitalis Erda game these days. You get Ian O'Toole artwork, this beautiful production goes up on the top shelf. This is a prize in my collection. Doesn't hit the table nearly as much as I would like, but every time it does, I just think to myself, man, this is a brilliant game. And, and that's why it is up here at number 30, Lisboa. Number 29, The Gallerist. What is this? Another Vital Lacerda game? So somehow these kind of ended up back to back in my list. And yes, The Gallerist is one spot higher than Lisboa. 
As I said, Vitalis Herrera is one of my favorite designers. I think he manages to inject theme and aesthetic into his games in a way that most other Euro designers don't or can't or decide not to. I'm not really sure, but he does it amazingly well. He takes what would otherwise be a heavy mechanically charged game and makes them into works of art. And for me, the gallerist does that best. It is what it's trying to be. It has beautiful artwork from all these different people who contributed to the game. And it weaves together all these different elements into such a precise, engaging experience. I just can't explain to you how much I enjoy this game. And in terms of like a solo experience, all of his games play solo. This is my favorite of them for that. And that's why The Gallerist is slightly higher than Lisboa at number 29. Number 28, Battle Lore 2nd Edition. So rather than buying starter sets and overpriced miniatures for a tabletop war game, I love the command and color system because it takes all those things, all the big stuff that you would have in a game like that and narrows it down, whittles it down to the basic mechanics that you need to have fun. And that's what Battle Lore 2nd Edition is. Unfortunately, they no longer make this game, which is a shame because it was so, so good. I have everything for it. I still play it regularly, even with people who haven't heard of it because it hasn't been on the shelves now for a couple of years. I wish it had released more factions. You still just have those three from the originals and the expansions. Never got our elves, never got the others in the, in the universe. But Battlelord Second Edition remains an amazing game. Here's to hoping that Battlelord makes its way back in yet another permutation someday in a new format. Number 27, Seven Wonders. So I'll be honest in that I actually disliked Seven Wonders the first several plays. It's honestly, it's a little hard to know what to do for a long time with all those icons. But once it clicks, the beauty of the game becomes almost immediately apparent. It's elegant. And with all those expansions, attention and strategy ramps up even higher, making this a top pick for me. I think by itself, it'd be a lower on the list. But when you throw in the city's expansion, the leader's expansion, Babel, and most recently Armada, which I think is a fantastic expansion and has really brought this back to the table a lot for me lately. Seven Wonders is such a good game and just managed to stay up here in the top quarter of the list easily. Number 26, Pandemic Legacy Season 1. So this is one of the top games of all time on BGG. And I will I will say the same for me. Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is one of my best ex- gaming experiences, period. It was tense. It was engaging, spectacularly fun. I've been chasing that feeling ever since. And honestly, no other Legacy game has managed to live up to it. So that's why this is really the only one on the list. It's The only reason it's not higher is because I find it a little hard to recommend a 15 to 20 hour game experience instead of a single game you can sit down and play whenever you feel like it. But if you haven't played this yet, if you have a group to play, heck, if you just have a partner that you can play with, I just played with my wife. This game is amazing and you have to give it a go. It's Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Number 25, Star Wars Imperial Assault. All right, so... There was a time when we thought we would never get a decent Star Wars board game. And obviously now that has changed as we have several of them. Fantasy Flight has managed to work out some deals and just board games out out every everywhere, right? Imperial Assault, though, was the moment at which I was like, oh my gosh, it's Star Wars. There's miniatures. It's in a box. I could do whatever I want with it. 
And so I've bought literally everything that's been released for this game. <laughs> I honestly did not know what Fantasy Flight could do beyond what they'd already done with the systems, but Imperial Assault managed to take everything that makes Descent Second Edition so much fun and make it better, more streamlined, more engaging, more tactical, and more Star Wars, which is all I could ask for. I own five or six boxes of stuff covering the top of my shelf. I don't get a chance to play this nearly as much as I would like to because I'm probably the biggest Star Wars fan I know. But with a seven-year-old getting older, with that app that allows you to play the first couple of big box expansions now in a solo experience, and with the skirmish rules, there's a lot in these to, to really enjoy and tons of gameplay to go around. That's why Star Wars Imperial Assault is my number 25. Number 24, Blood Rage. This is a game that was up in the top of my list last time around and still up here, number 24. Uh, I think it fell down just a tiny little bit, if only because I haven't played it as much lately. But it jumped up there immediately. I played it once and it was up there already. This game is so good. And the reason why is at times hard to pinpoint, but honestly, it's just, it takes everything that people love about Amerithrash games. It takes the the combat, the the fun of building up an army, of putting all those miniatures out there and just stomping things on the map and actually add some tactical depth to it. So you're thinking about things and drafting cards and trying to build up your tableau and do interesting things with the stuff you've been given in a way that you don't get to do in those types of games. Gorgeous miniatures, carefully balanced card drafting. There's nothing about this game I don't like. That's why Blood Rage is my number 24. Number 23, Legends of Andor. Adventure gaming for Euro players. That's, that's why I have to yell every time I talk about this game. I want to like adventure games. I always have wanted to like them. I like RPGs. I like fantasy novels. I just never could get into adventure games, at least some of the more traditional ones. They bore me a little bit. So Legends of Andor stood out because it has a lot of intricate puzzles. It has an interesting storyline woven throughout the game's different chapters. All of it's immensely satisfying for me, beginning to end. There is now a full trilogy of content, more than 40 different of these adventures to go through. The replayability is up there on par with like a Gloomhaven, which has more, of course, but you're not going to do all of them, probably. <laughs> and a fun story to draw you through it all. Uh, that Legends of Andor, number 23, fantastic adventure game. Check it out. Number 22, Arkham Horror, the card game. All right, we have a second Cthulhu-based game on this list. Check out the, the bonus coverage for the other one. This is, honestly, I'm going to say Lord of the Rings still holds a special place in my heart. And on this list, I will get to it where, where it's sitting. It's a little bit higher than this. But Arkham Horror, the card game, is likely the better game. The fine-tuning, streamlining, the narrative integration, the mechanics the way it, it really works as a single-player game just as well as a two-player game without any kind of tweaks. Arkham Horror, the card game, is a better game. And I appreciate it, and I love it, and I have all the content that's been released for this thing. It's just not thematically as engaging for me as Lord of the Rings. But even with that said, as a Cthulhu Arkham Files game, it's still up here at number 22 because it is that good of a game. Uh, that is Arkham Horror, the card game. Number 21, Anachrony. So this game looks and sounds a little bonkers. It's full of futuristic sci-fi factions, an ominous apocalypse, liberal doses of time travel. And on its on the surface, that sounds like some crazy Amerithrash game, right? It's not. It's a Euro. And under all that theme is one of the best worker placement games I've experienced. 
It's a brilliantly crafted experience, tons of interesting decisions, lots of unique content coming and going. The time travel mechanism, while not mind-blowingly unique, it's basically a loan system, is still very well implemented and works within this theme quite well. And the solo game with the Chronobot, brilliantly crafted, one of my favorites. That's why number 21 on the list is Anachrity. Number 20, Scythe. While it's not quite greatest game of all time level that I was hoping for when I backed it, backer number three on the original Kickstarter, Scythe nonetheless remains in my top 20 and for very good reason. It's full of interesting decisions, a sublime mixture of adventure, puzzling and combat, and loaded with expansion content, uh, especially the Rise of Fenris. I have not gone through the campaign yet myself. That might push this thing a little bit higher, but there's so much to do here, so much replayability, such a wide range of player accounts supported. Honestly, this is one of the few Euro games that can cover such a broad spectrum of different types of players. This thing manages to do everything really, really well, including the solo play. And that's why it's number 20 on my list. Site number 19, Russian Railroads. I can't help but salivate when playing a game like Russian Railroads and seeing my score double and then triple and balloon up to like 300, 400 points. This is a true snowball worker placement game and it is so much fun. And while I loved the original game, I was willing to admit it had some flaws. That's why if you add German Railroads, the first expansion, it fixes pretty much every problem, at least that I had with the original, and makes it that much better, jumping it way up here to number 19. Solo games, a lot of fun, variability in the different boards, all this different stuff you can implement in the game. Absolutely fantastic. Russian Railroads with German Railroads must buy for anybody who likes worker placement games. Number 18, Power Grid. So Power Grid looks and at first feels a bit dry, but the game holds up incredibly well to other more complex and advanced economics games. Throw in the big deluxe edition board, upgraded components from Stonemaier Games, and one of the dozen expansion boards, and you have a game that I could play on end for days. Uh, that's why Power Grid stays up here in the top of my list, hasn't moved much, number 18. Number 17, Imperial Settlers. So if you've listened to my podcast, this one, or honestly, the other one, um, at any point in the last five years, you know that this is one of my favorite games. Imperial Settlers has Imperial Settlers now has seven different factions, deck building options, a completely asymmetrical play that allows you to really build a civilization in a fun, borderline campy world of your choice. It's really, really good. And it has a spectacularly cool campaign mode that you can download. It's not out of the box, unfortunately, but you can download it and level up one of your own civilizations in a solo campaign, which has really pushed this game over the edge for me. It's number 17 on the list for a reason, Imperial Settlers. Number 16, Gloomhaven. So this game sits at number one on BGG and probably isn't going anywhere for a while based on its score. Honestly, this game is a beast. It's big, it's long, it's loaded with content, it's not very cheap. <laughs> it's also the single best dungeon crawl experience you'll ever have. And while I have come nowhere near beating it all, it's got a place of honor on my shelf. This probably would have been a little bit higher on this list if I'd done it maybe a year ago. Uh, this game has gotten a little bit harder to get to the table as more people have played it and it's kind of saturated the market a little bit. I feel like it's going to come back for me a little bit more in the next couple years as I get it back to the table, find a new group, kind of work my way through further through the content. But 
honestly, I just I can't imagine ever enjoying a dungeon crawl experience as much as this with the puzzly Euro type elements to it. That is why Gloomhaven is 100% one of my top games of all time. Number 15, Seven Wonders Duel. So this for me is quite possibly the perfect two player game that is short. It is quick, accessible, easy to teach, and a perfect distillation of everything that Seven Wonders does so well, but for two players. Duel is a game I always have in my game bag for the two player droughts we all run into during game night. Expansion adds a lot of interesting content. I don't think it's necessary, but it adds more. So you might as well have it. And this is the kind of game that it's not going away, guys. This is it's a perfect 20, 30 minute game in between other bigger, longer games. Uh, I could sit and play it with my wife or my son. Seven Wonders Duel is just such an amazing experience and perfectly complements the brilliance that is Seven Wonders. And uh, that's why it's number 15 on the list. Seven Wonders Duel. Number 14, Suburbia. Suburbia is my favorite city building game. It is kind of faded away, I feel like. Uh, we don't see as much content about it. There haven't been any expansions in a few years now. The Castles of Mad King Ludwig kind of took over for Bezier Games as one of their leading games. I don't like it as much. It drags a little. It's I don't like kind of the, the whole way you put stuff out and people bid on things and you're trying to figure that out. Suburbia is you're building your own city. You're making decisions. It's based on the draft. The expansion content adds a lot of cool things. The borders, the five stars, all that stuff's amazing. Suburbia is just a brilliant experience, and especially in the app where you have a nice puzzly solo campaign you can run through that is incredibly difficult, but will make you better at the game. Uh, that is why Suburbia is by far my favorite city building game, which is a genre I absolutely love and have been playing since I was 10 years old playing SimCity 2000 <laughs> on my parents' computer, uh, Suburbia. Number 13, The Voyages of Marco Polo. All right, guys. So the, from the guys who brought us Zulkin, The Voyages of Marco Polo is a brilliant refinement of several different familiar Euro mechanisms. It's a Honestly, it's a testament to how good this game is that it makes my list repeatedly time after time when there's other games that have similar ideas in them. It's dice placement. It is the balance of completing these contracts against generating you know, these different types of revenue and managing your camels and traveling around the map. The thing that really drives this game home for me, though, is the sheer audacity of how incredibly imbalanced and yet so balanced each of these different characters is. You can go out there with just about any of them and win the game if you know what you're doing with it. And you will always hear one person at the table say, oh, well, that one's the best one. I guarantee you that's not the one that'll win that game. Voyages of Marco Polo stays at the top of my list, remains there. I personally love the expansion as well. Adds a lot of fun new content to the board. You don't need it, though, because the core game is just that good. The Voyages of Marco Polo. Number 12, Caverna, Cave Farmers. For me, Caverna is the ultimate farming-based worker placement hero. And I know that sounds incredibly specific, but there's a lot of them out there. Part of that, part of the reason I say that is I don't really love Agricola. And Caverna manages to take what makes Agricola success and refine it into a brilliant game that scales well from about one to five-ish. The game plays to seven, but I don't recommend it. It has amazing components and it allows you to stay underground if you're truly tired of all those sheep and pumpkins and all the other Rosenberg games. The really cool thing too is we have a new expansion coming out um, only had a chance to kind of taste a little bit of what it can do, but we're going to have factions and some asymmetrical materials to the game as well, which are really going to bring this back to the table. 
I cannot tell you how excited I am to be able to get this thing out more. Caverna, Cave Farmers. Number 11, Mage Knight. Mage Knight is built for one to two players. The box says one to four, but don't do it. It's cruel and unusual to get three or four people to sit down and play this game. It is the pinnacle of solo gaming, and it works decently well, too, as well. It's brilliant. It's tactically rich. It's adventure-driven puzzle of a game full of crunchy mechanics and thematically rich gameplay. I love Mage Knight, and I also love Star Trek Frontiers. If you have, if you're more interested in a sci-fi theme than the fantasy theme, it re-envisions it a slightly easier box and everything in between. It is just such a brilliant game. There's a reason this is the number one solo game year after year after year. It deserves it. There's so much depth here. I could play this game on end probably for months and still be happy with it. That's Mage Knight. Number 10, the Castles of Burgundy. All right, so we're getting up here into the top of the list, and these are what I consider my upper echelon games. Any single one of these 10 games, I would be happy to play any night of the week, night after night after night. <laughs> and the Castles of Burgundy is that game for me. It is this, it is the Euro, especially the Stefan Fell game, that in my opinion is still his best. I honestly, I love a good year that uses dice effectively without forcing the player to rely heavily on luck. And this game does just that. It allows exciting, tight games that are always different, but never too long. At the same time, the scores get crazy high because it's a Stefan Fell game. There's point salad. You're steamrolling your points up and up and up. So you get to do a lot of cool stuff. But nonetheless, you're always going to see like within 20 or 30 points, even when you're up in the two and three hundreds. The Castles of Burgundy, there's a reason it's considered his best game. There's a reason there's several other games based on it. It is such a good experience and well worth checking out if you've not had a chance to play it yet. Number nine, Spirium. Spirium is just such an underrated gem, you guys. It is the perfect middle ground euro for small groups. It's inexpensive, like 30 bucks. It's quick, takes only about an hour. It's flexible with up to four players. It's also just a great little engine builder. And I love the unique worker placement and retrieval mechanic where you're basically bidding workers, but increasing the price for other people at the same time. The games are exciting. They're quick. They're full of unique and interesting decisions for you to make. But man, is this game hard to get to the table. <laughs> I think part of that is just, it's not well known. It is by the designer of Kalos, another brilliant game. And it does a lot of unique and interesting things. But thematically, it's a little dry. And production-wise, it's definitely on the lower end, especially at that price point. But if you have a chance to play it, you owe it to yourself. Check out Spirium. If you ever see me, ask me about it. I will run home and grab my copy. We will play. Number eight, A Feast for Odin. All right. So I've mentioned several Uwe Rosenberg games on this list. This is the last one. It's the highest rated one for me. For me, Uwe Rosenberg is a master of worker placement games. And that is probably my favorite genre of Euro games. And The Feast for Odin, it's the biggest. It's the most audacious. It's the most puzzly, which I love, of the bunch. And that's why it's up here on this list. It's big, it's long, it's loaded with so many decisions that I still find new things to do. It has a massive sprawling board with 80-something different places you can go with your workers, different amounts of workers, you get new workers every round, and everything you get, everything you purchase, you build, you hunt, you pillage, that comes back to you as these little polyomino pieces that you will be strategically placing around your player board and other maps you pick up Yes, sir. It is a polyomino placing game uh, trying to get new bonuses, increase your income and block out negative victory points. Man, this is such a good game. And I'm really excited for the expansion, which is going to add even more cool stuff to do. 
That's a feast for Odin. Number seven, Lord of the Rings, the card game. All right. I have several thousand cards for this game right now. Um, and that's only probably half of what's available out there. And I still love sitting down and spending hours digging through the binders, digging through the deck boxes and building decks. And that's what this game is really about. It is experience in which you are tackling individual challenges in each of these specific adventures that change the rules, throw something unique and difficult at you. And you have to change your deck. You have to adjust things. You have to make it, you know, a little bit better against goblins or a little bit better against orcs or a little bit more creative to work around the death of one of your characters, whatever it is you're doing. It's just so much of that. And there's so much content here and it manages to go so much further beyond like the core trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. If you love Tolkien, if you love card games, if you love deck building, Lord of the Rings, the card game is absolutely worth your time. It's great as solo. It's great two players co-op and it tells a great story from a familiar universe. It's Lord of the Rings, the card game. Number six, Brass Birmingham. One of the many blemishes on my list of games played for years was Brass. And I finally played it this last year uh, with the new releases of Lancashire and Birmingham. Lancashire being the original game and Birmingham being the slightly updated rules revamped version with some new mechanics to it. And it instantly shot into my top 10, that original version of Brass, until I played this one, Birmingham, uh, the revised edition from Roxley Games. It's sleeker and offers a slew of new interesting decisions in the same compact, tightly designed package. The rules are something like six pages long. The game is relatively easy to teach. It sets up quickly. And there are so many good, crunchy decisions to be made on the board. And man, is this beautiful. The new production is just absolutely gorgeous putting it up there with any ENO tool design in my eyes um, and something I'm proud to bring to the table and show to people who aren't Euro gamers. Brass Birmingham, I know it's a little controversial with longtime brass players, but having never played the original, I can say from my perspective, this is the better of the two and just shot up the list into my top 10 and I've been playing it so much lately. So Brass Birmingham is at number six. Number five, Spirit Island. This game was like a lightning bolt. It crashed into my top 10 last year. It was my number one game of 2017, instantly blowing away any of my preconceptions about cooperative games. And it just does it in such an interesting way. On one side, it's an engaging social commentary. On the other side, it's a blisteringly difficult cooperative game wrapped in a shell of Euro-driven mechanics. All the stuff I love, it manages to be a Euro, but also be cooperative and up until a couple of years ago, those things were not compatible. It just could not happen. There are few games as well-conceived and as well-executed as Spirit Island. It's fun. It is immensely challenging, has a ton of replayability. There's so much more content coming for it with the expansion here in about a year and a half. Spirit Island is just such an amazing game. You owe it to yourself to play if you haven't yet as number five. Number four, Terraforming Mars. All right, let's get the bad stuff out of the way. It's ugly to look at, can drag on a little too long. And the deck of cards is so big, I break it into three decks now. And for those who sleeve it, maybe four. But I absolutely adore this game. It is immense, constantly growing. The depth here is just incredible. The kind that has made it my most played game of both 2016 and 2017, and in my top five played games of 2018. That does not happen very often. <laughs> I'm on two podcasts. Very few games manage to pull that off. 
Terraforming Mars is just such an amazing game. None of the expansions are really must-owns. Prelude speeds it up a little bit. Um, Colonies is really interesting. It adds new mechanics. So I definitely recommend that as well. But altogether, this whole experience of a game, it's just, I can't get past how good it is. I play this game at least once a week. And I look forward to whatever new content comes out next. This is one of the few games where I've bought everything that comes out sight unseen. Just play it immediately. And uh, for good reason. And that's number four on the list, Terraforming Mars. Number three, Twilight Imperium 4. I didn't have a chance to play the previous iterations of this game, uh, but a fateful spot in the Fantasy Flight line at Gen Con and a chance to get it and play it early (laughs) made me spend the money and introduced me to one of the best games ever made, period. It's sweeping, it's epic, it's full of interesting decisions and things to do. I have never had more fun than the six to 10 hours I spent playing this game. And I think a lot of people fall into this boat where they think, oh, this is too much, it's too hard, it's too complicated. Honestly, Twilight Imperium is not the most complicated game on this list, not by a long shot. It The rules are fairly straightforward. It's like 15, 16 pages. There are some little in- intricacies you're going to run into. And people who've played the game a lot are going to have an advantage because they know what all the different factions can and will do and what all the cards are. But at the basic level, you're building up your fleet. You are moving it around. You are taking certain actions. You are generating resources. And then you're using those resources to do things. It is pretty much like every 4X game out there, but it manages to just mix in so many other interesting, fun mechanics. Twilight Imperium 4 is an experience. I just... It's hard to recommend to anybody who doesn't have that kind of time, but if you have a chance, you owe it to yourself to play this at least once. Number two, Gaia Project. So Gaia Project is a re-implementation of Terra Mystica in space. And earlier, on my earlier list, I think Terra Mystica was in the top five, right? And this bumped up a little bit because Gaia Project manages to take everything Terra Mystica is and make it better. (laughs) <laughs> it has the same tight, finely tuned Euro gameplay of the original, um, but it offers more variability, better balance, and a cool space theme. Uh, the only way this gets bumped is if they somehow bring the same thing to Terra Mystica and manage to turn that game into kind of the same variable, more flexible game that Gaia Project isn't right now. But honestly, I find it hard to imagine any Euro pulling together as diverse and interesting and uh, asymmetrical of a combination of different options as you get in Gaia Project. It's such a beautiful, amazing game. The only major barrier, to me at least right now, is the cost. You throw all that extra stuff in there, it does have a bit of a high price tag. That is number two, Gaia Project. And number one on my personal list, War of the Ring. This has not changed. <laughs> um, and when I was making this list, I, I think Chris said the same thing. I tried to look at games a little bit differently. I tried not to be so focused on, you know, the big epic sweeping experiences. Obviously, I, you know, there's a few in here, here at the top of the list. But I tried to look at games I actually played. And War of the Ring is a game I don't get to play very often. It's hard to get to the table. It's long. It's involved. Um, I have to reread the rules every time. And yet, even just playing it a little bit, getting that little bit of a taste of it every now and then is enough to keep it here at the top of the list. This is, to me, the ultimate gaming experience. There have been few games that have sat down to play for the entire day, let alone explored on this particular level. I've painted the miniatures. I've played through it alone to pick up on strategies. I've gone through each of the expansions and picked and chosen and decided what I like and what I don't like about them so I can decide when I want to put them in and when I don't want to. 
And there's just so much here. There's so much depth. It's just one of the best examples of asymmetry in a board game. And I don't see how anything can top it. That is why War of the Ring is my number one game. It was three years ago, and it will remain so for the foreseeable future, I think. That is number one, War of the Ring. All right, guys, so that is my top 50 games. I do have another 50 after that, of course. You can check those out over on the bonus episode, uh, which Chris is going to pull together. And uh, yeah, I think there's probably some more surprises on that list. If you know anything about me, maybe there's a couple surprises on this side of things. But for the most part, this is the kind of stuff I talk about all the time. But I'd love to hear from everybody out there too, like what you think about these games, about games that maybe didn't make it, like Birmingham versus Lancashire, Guy Project over Terra Mystica. Those are at times tough decisions for me, but sometimes not so tough. So I'd be interested to hear what other people's thoughts are in those as well. Wow, that is some list, Anthony. Thanks so much. Now let me get on to my top 50. Number 50, Glory to Rome. The champion of multi-cues cards has to be Glory to Rome. A brilliant and engaging experience of building of technologies to an often surprising victory. The only downfall to this game is that it's currently out of print. Number 49, Food Chain Magnet, a painfully tense and yet highly enjoyable game about cornering the fast food market. A dynamic, impressive card play system allows for multiple paths to victory. Everything but the art of the board has a real thematic flair. Number 48, Antiquity. Just when you thought you were a heavy gamer, Splatter comes along and drops on you the most intense research management slash area control game in tabletop. If you do not get buried under the endless chits, you will certainly adore this AP breaking masterwork. Number 47, Lorenzo Il Manifico. Lorenzo Il Manifico and its expansion is what happens when you love Euro engine building just way too much. It is lush with opportunities and yet the AP involved in picking a single card is significant and lovely each and every time. Number 46, Smartphone Inc. Stark in its look and application, but complex and engaging in its interaction with other players, Smartphone Inc. makes all other economic games seem disconnected and cluttered. It's a rare gem for 2018. Number 45, Underwater Cities. It seemingly takes everything great and not so great about the popular Terraforming Mars game and makes it better in almost every way possible. It has personal boards in which you can build up your plans and technologies that follows a logical progression that makes this game a refined gem that will certainly be a modern day classic one day. Number 44, Castell. Who thought the Catalana tradition of building human towers would make such a great game? But yet it does. You choose and build your towers of Castelleras to meet the goals of the city that's requesting a specific importance, all the while trying to hit specific public goals and managing a special ability wheel. Great production. Number 43, Caverna, the cave farmers. Uwe Rosenberg could have easily let Agricola be his magnum opus, but he went back to the farm and allowed for his cards to now be open information tiles and feeding your people is now reasonable. Multiple pets to victory and specialization are just two of the fantastic reasons to play this game. Number 42, Terraforming Mars. 
Despite its poor production, Terraforming Mars has brought efficient card play and action to the forefront. Endless paths to victory and expansions that correct some of the initial problems of the core gameplay makes this a dynamic game that everyone must play. Number 41, Cuba. Cuba allows players to build out a flush landscape and dynamic economic engine that is beautiful and complex in its application. Sadly, this gem is out of print, but it still holds a relevant place with many gamers. Number 40, Obsession. Obsession allows you to take the role of a family member seeking to rise in the social structure through the use of elegant deck and tableau building with a dash of worker placement. It seems all very complex, but somehow works so simply that this newcomer is sure to rise in its reputation. Number 39, Orleans. Orleans is a fine bag building game, but what really makes it shine is its expansions that give the game real depth with additional technology and new boards that make your dismissing workers truly valuable. Number 38, Last Will. After years of building complex Euro game engines, Last Will comes in and forces you to deconstruct it. It is a simple idea, but a truly mind-frying experience that has you laughing all the way to the poorhouse and victory. Number 37, The Prodigals Club. If destroying your financial future wasn't enough in Last Will, The Prodigal Clubs comes along and does you one better by helping you destroy your social standing as well. What is strangely beautiful about this game is that you can actually, in fact, play with Last Will. So you can have your cake and lose it too. Number 36, St. Petersburg 2nd Edition. One of my first and most meaningful Euro engine builders was St. Petersburg 1st Edition. It's a classic for its simple-to-learn, lifetime-to-master quality, but has stood the test of time with its numerous paths to victory. A must-play. Number 35, The Manhattan Project Energy Empire. The Manhattan Project Energy Empire brings us the hard fact that the actions that are quick and easy often bring the longest lasting damage to our success. Power up your empire with dice, but be careful as power has a price. Multiple technologies offer endless replayability in front of the table. Out of all of its many iterations, this is by far the best Manhattan Project. Number 34, Rococo. Rococo doesn't get the love it deserves, and it's a terrible shame. The opulence of the time it depicts has turned many off from what is an exquisite card management area control game. Number 33, Dinosaur Island. Dinosaur Island should be just a collection of ridiculous dinosaur miniatures and endless Jurassic Park references. And yet, with its streamlined gameplay and endless replayability, this is a game that has earned a worthy place at the table. Number 32, Cyclades. The Battle of the Greek Isles has never been more fun than with this bidding-style war game that allows you to employ the blessings of the Greek gods. The expansions that follow the base game really open the game up and literally transform the landscape of the Battle on the Isles. Number 31, Concordia. Trading in the Mediterranean has never been more fun or innovative. Instead of a rondelle, Matt Gertz brings us an expanding hand of cards that allow us to gain our own path to victory. 
a real gem. Number 30, Brass Birmingham. Brass Birmingham has surpassed its predecessor with a more expansive market and higher replayability, not to mention a great new look and feel you get when you get to use the new money. Number 29, Small World. Stellar production and slick design makes this area control game sing with the endless combos of race and special powers. Small World scales perfectly to any player count and is a joy whether you are a hardcore gamer or new to the hobby. Wonderful expansions that are all must-buys. Number 28, Seven Wonders. Elegant in design and accessibility for all gamer levels, Seven Wonders brings civilization building to life with brilliant card drafting and tableau design. The expansions open up the game to a much deeper and more direct player interaction. Number 27, Amerigo. Amerigo is one of Stefan Feld's most ambitious exploration game that utilizes a cube tower to determine the strength of each action with a bit of surprise for later. Epic looking on the table as always with many paths to victory. You do not want to pass up this Feld. Number 26, Arcadia Quest. With endless cute chibi fantasy characters and a rock-solid design and gameplay, Arcadia Quest dominates dungeon crawling campaign with its player-versus-player setup. Number 25, Carson City Big Box. Carson City does something remarkable in that it brings thematic realism and meaningful player interaction in a worker placement game. I've chosen the Big Box version here because the game really shines with the high-quality components and numerous player roles. Number 24, Rune Wars. When I think of epic fantasy battles, there is no game better than Rune Wars. The opportunity to expand with a race, build troops, and utilize your hero's special abilities makes this an old-school, real-time strategy game that really shines at the table. Number 23, Agricola. I never thought I would like a farming game, and yet, here I am singing the praises of Agricola. It is simply the most thematic Euro game that you will ever find. Number 22, Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization. If you're looking for a serious and meaningful civilization game, then Through the Ages, A New Story of Civilization is the game for you. I would argue that this is the Civ game more than any other that crafts a deep and meaningful story while bringing satisfying gameplay. Number 21, First Class, All Aboard the Orient Express. What a sincerely delightful and innovative train building game that offers the most diverse number of opportunities for replayability right down to a murder mystery. The wonderful building of the train that expands across your table is really a sight to be seen. Number 20, Kemet. Kemet is beautiful as it is ruthless. Armies will battle out in the desert with the use of exotic monsters, the Egyptian gods, and an innovative market of upgrades. Wonderful Expansions opens up this game even more, with the last making this game a one versus many. Number 19, Rising Sun. Massive and beautiful in every way, Rising Sun has dominated 2018 and every table in its wake, and yet its gameplay is well thought out and simple to follow. Numerous paths to victory and expansions make this game a rising hit. Number 18, The Voyages of Marco Polo. The Voyages of Marco Polo accomplishes what few games ever do. It provides asymmetrical powers that feel balanced in the game. Dice placement is tight, but fun, and the expansions really open up the game. 
Number 17, German Railroads. Russian Railroads is a fantastic game, but only with its expansion German Railroads does the game truly shine. Otherwise, the gameplay always comes down to who is the first player that round, giving them the best choice and the other players are forced to taste less and less valuable choices. Add German Railroads to the game and you have a tremendous experience. Number 16, 878 Vikings Invasion of England. Two to four players can enjoy this fantastic realism of strategic decisions that makes 878 Vikings Invasion of Europe so dynamic. Dudes on the map game have never been more intense or fun. Number 15, Tricarion Legends of Illusion. Presto changeo! Tricarion Legends of Illusions make worker placement fun again and also dramatically complex. Wondrous art and graphic design allows for deep and meaningful gameplay that deserves numerous trips to the table. Number 14, Feudum. Never has there been a more wondrous and inspired thematic area control game that with one simple pull of a guild starts a fantastic chain of events that will lead you to rule or whimper away. Number 13, Scythe. Scythe is, as I predicted, a game changer for the industry. It incorporates stellar artwork and a mashup of great Euro and Amerithrash gameplay. And yet, it only truly shines when you incorporate the Rise of Fenris expansion that makes Scythe a fully realized gameplay experience. Number 12, Dominaire. Dominaire is often overlooked in the Tempest universe, but it's simply the best game of the family. Card drafting and tableau building with the additional challenge of timing the triggering events in this area control game is absolutely fantastic. Number 11, Blood Rage. Blood Rage was and continues to be a game like no other. It expertly provides a dynamic Amerithrash slash Euro experience with multiple paths to victory that embodies a minute to learn, a lifetime to master goal. Number 10, Star Wars Rebellion. Star Wars Rebellion is simply the best and greatest Star Wars in a box that board gaming has ever had, period. Along with a worthy expansion, even non-Star Wars fans will enjoy the hidden movement, battles, and fantastic production. Number 9, War of the Ring 2nd Edition. If Lord of the Rings was to be told in cardboard, it would, of course, be War of the Rings 2nd Edition. Hidden movement, epic battles, and engaging card play makes this game the classic Grail game that everyone must play. Number 8, Roll for the Galaxy. A stellar production and engaging dice resource placement makes Roll for the Galaxy one of the greatest civilization games ever placed in space. Number seven, dominant species. When critics of Eurogame scoff at the hobby, they often point to the cubes and cones of dominant species. And yet, on closer observation, you will find one of the most thoughtful and interactive games ever crafted. Number six, Lisboa. Lisboa is an elegant crafted game about the rebuilding of this famous Portugal city after an earthquake, fire, and flood. Beautiful artwork and intense card play makes this heavy Euro game something everyone should play. Number five, Bruges. Steffenfeld has many wonderful designs, but Bruges, with its multi-use cards and multiple point salads to victory, can't be overstated. 
a must-have expansion fills out the dice rolls in a very satisfying way. Number four, Shipyards. Rondells for days and I could not be happier. I love the way you select your end bonuses and how you actually put together the pieces of a ship, make Shipyard everything you could ask for in a heavy euro. Number three, Seven Wonders Duel. Seven Wonders Duel simply does the impossible by taking a modern-day classic in Seven Wonders and makes it far better and more streamlined. Add the expansion for more player interaction and additional special abilities, and you have a wondrous civilization game on your hands. Number two, Defenders of the Realm. There have been very few game experiences that have wowed me like Defenders of the Realm. It's an old-school fantasy D&D with an epic narrative and wonderful expansions. I've yet to meet a gamer that has not loved the experience. It has a deep and great bench of expansions. And now, my number one pick for my top 100 games of all time, Spirit Island. Dreamlike in its presentation, yet pragmatic in its strategy, Spirit Island has you taking up arms against the colonists corrupting your lands having the MPC of the native people join your cause, as well as fellow spirits making this co-op game a joy to behold. It's got multiple expansions that really add to the gameplay and really flush out the world. It's a wonderful game. All right, so there you are, my top game of 2018. Hope you enjoyed the list. All right, so there you go. Anthony's top 50 games my top 50 games of all time for 2018. Anthony, that was some list, I have to admit. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's like I said earlier, at the beginning of the episode, way, 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 way back. <laughs> if you remember back yonder, it was tough. There was a lot of tough decisions in there. So, And you'll notice, like if you go back and look at my list from four or five years ago, I axed some games completely off the list, which some of which I might have talked about there, some of which I'll talk about on the 51 to 100, but oh man, it was rough, but a lot of fun. Yeah, and as Anthony mentioned, if you really want to get some comparison, jump back, listen to episode 150, which has a list that Anthony and I put together of our top 100 games, and or jump all the way back to episode 100, where Anthony, I, Daniel, and Drew put together our top 100 games of all time. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at the website, BoardGamersAndHonest.com, each of those lists is on the website. If you go to top lists and you can look, you can find mine, Chris's, Daniel's, Andrew's. You can see each of ours top 50. And specifically mine and Chris's, you can look at it and compare it to where it is now and see how many things have moved and shifted and what games we don't play anymore or, what, or that are new to the list. That was a lot of fun for me too, just looking through that and being like, am I sure I want to boot this? Yeah, I think I'm going to. Yeah, I think that's the most fun when you get to see how far you've come and how some of the games didn't come along with you. They just kind of fell off the list or got, you know, upgraded by something else that came along. So definitely check those lists out. You may want to check them out in advance before you're listening to our Patreon back episode where you get to listen to our 51 through 100 top games for 2018 because typically that's where the list really moves a lot and really has a lot of the newcomers just showing up for the very first time. All right, so that's everything for episode 200. Once again, thank you everyone who listens each and every week, shares the podcast on Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, with friends, with family. Just 
it's an enormous pleasure to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you each and every week. Merry Christmas to everyone. Happy holidays. And we will listen and we will be back next week once again with your top 20 on episode 201. So until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat at the table. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.